Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the extended mixes on the 12-inch of Pink Cadillac by Natalie Cole were subtitled the M1 and M4 motorway mixes. That must have sounded more glamorous on paper. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is artist and writer Rose Ruane. Rose, what you up to? Where can we find it? So I've got a novel out at the moment called This Is Yesterday, which is about growing up in the 1990s and about the adolescent that resides within the adult and looking back on those formative years of sort of horniness and boredom and still being quite a bored horny adult but sort of reinterpreting our past and you can find that in all good bookshops which I love saying at the risk of sounding like J.R. Well until you brought horniness into the equation I did have a good link lined up of basically saying I wonder how far your first choice will factor into that but hopefully (laughs) hopefully he stroke she I'm not quite sure what it actually is won't at all. And now here's there's Poochie's own stamper, pencils, paper and reminders for your busy days. Poochie's cute beauty sets for your pretty face and lots, lots more. Okay, as we'll come back to, I couldn't find the full song and I will, will quote from that shortly. But that was an advert there for Poochie. Not the one from The Simpsons. Rose, who or what was it? Pucci was an extremely diva dog who always had sunglasses on her head as that sort of in a way that always suggested she was perhaps like a little bit hungover or incredibly famous with like big bouffant pink ears and a yellow collar and I think she was a Mattel product and I'm never clear about whether or not there was a cartoon because she sort of existed in toy and cartoon drawing form and she was basically there to seduce little children with a hankering for pink into getting as much stationery, stuffed animals, school bags as possible. But she definitely, for a dog, I think she was a poodle. It's always quite hard, you know, in the crafts of cartoon dogs to work out what breed they are. But I think she was some kind of poodle, if only for her sort of kitschness and the bigness and lushness of her ears slash hair. I was going to say, pink is a very dominant theme because basically Poochie's got this extraordinary Zandra Rhodes look going on. This just wadge of pink hair. Like you say, there was apparently a very short-lived cartoon, which I've got some thoughts on. Well, not on the cartoon itself, but on the whole idea of doing cartoons themed around toys. But Poochie was originally launched. Apparently there's different adverts in America, but over here we got one that I now can't find where it started with a cartoon where it said... Quote, once your fairy godmother said don't touch the flowers out in the morning sun, but you ate them all up and you turned the pretty pink and everybody thinks you're much more fun. And then it went into the Poochie, oh Poochie, lovely little Poochie, which is weirdly the same as there was a Jelly Tots, Dolly Tots and Tiger Tots. And that bet for all four of them around that time, they had more or less the same song, so I assume it was the same guy did them. And it was this sort of very, in a sense, twee-looking setup, although Poochie seems to be more zany than some of the 
other kind of twee creations aimed specifically at girls around that time, like the Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake and Rainbow Bright. There seems to be a bit more, not quite surreal humour, but that kind of element to it. But yeah, Poochie was very sort of aimed in the cutesy direction. Very cutesy, but with like a remarkably sort of psychedelic vibe to the introduction. I mean, I think there's some real like 60s West Coast vibes to like eating the flowers and (laughs) the rainbows. I always felt like, you know, Poochie had lived. I felt like she was some kind of global citizen diva. I think it's the sunglasses. I can't get over how often she had her sunglasses perched on her head in a way that sort of suggested some kind of starlity quality that like, maybe Poochie was in fashion I don't know if it's the Sandra Rhodes thing but I always assumed like a certain cosmopolitan quality to Poochie that I really enjoyed <laughs> And like you said, there was a very short-lived cartoon, but my feeling about those cartoons in the 80s, it was always a bit which came first, the toy line or the idea for the cartoon, but there are a lot of interlinked ones. But the ones that seem to work, the ones that people remember, the ones that ran for more than one series, are the ones that had a sort of mythology behind them. So, you know, that would be like Transformers, Mask, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Even, I suppose, things like My Little Pony had this sort of narrative. But a lot of the ones like Poochie, like Rainbow Bright, were just kind of we do good things and good things happen to us because of them and that's not really that's not an engaging narrative well it's not even the narrative it's one episode at a time but for kids watching cartoons i think that's probably why they didn't catch on really well i always think like at least you know because i'm i'm gonna challenge you on this that like rainbow bright was very narratively complex and even the care bears and strawberry shortcake like they all had a proper nemesis like any good cartoon there was like some kind of enmity there was a level of threat i always thought like nobody wanted the toys of their enemies they were always like you know something squat and green faced (laughs) and lantern jawed with like sort of vanilla vibes they were never very appealing and they usually had some like sort of horrible little insectoid sidekick whereas Poochie I think was a bit more like I wonder if she was like a sort of anglicised version of Hello Kitty or something where you just sort of drop the character into like some kind of frothy romp like a little bit of a fun situation of like where do you find yourself today Poochie like what are you doing how hungover are you are you wearing your sunglasses no they're still on your head which seems like quite a 90s thing doesn't it quite sort of minty that's nice sunglasses on head thing but yeah I don't remember there being like any particular unifying thread that ran through that unlike other things which you wrongly <laughs> didn't have enough <laughs> I'll admit my view there is mainly tainted by the get along gang who their sole purpose was they got on with each other and with everyone else I was tweeting about them the other day where I said they were basically the Tory Wuzzles because the <laughs> Wuzzles are like the Wuzzles were gender queer they were species queer they had great eye makeup they were unabashedly naked they had a great time messing about whereas the get along gang fucking always doing pee toxic positivity really jockey sportswear the absolute shower of little cops and they bullied bingo the adorable cute little freak in dungarees for like not going along with their nonsense self-care 
bullshit, whatever it was they did, it did seem to mainly centre on jogging and juice, like some kind of multi-level marketing scheme or some kind of Instagrammable lifestyle brand. They probably had like sort of very joyless vibrators and all sorts of things. So yeah, don't start me on the get along gang. I can't stand those fuckers. The get-along gang would have bullied me at school, whereas the Wuzzles would have been my friends. I will say, though, I mean, like you say, nobody did want the villains of Strawberry Shortcake song, but it's worth pointing out, everyone wanted Skeletor. They wanted Skeletor more than the endless variations on He-Man slash Prince Adam. So that's saying something. But I noticed Poochie did seem to diversify into a lot of other areas, like pencil cases and shrinky dinks, apparently, which I thought were sort of been and gone by the 80s. But... Did you have A, a Poochie, and B, any other associated Poochie memorabilia? Is it memorabilia? Merchandise? Poochie cushions, basically. (laughs) I mean, there's a point. I think if you have it as an adult, it's memorabilia. And if you have it as a (laughs) child, it's merchandise is probably the definition that I would make. And oh my God, I had as much of it as my pocket money could buy. I remember like working. I think I had the sort of associated shite First, like I remember having a poochie, it was like a little sort of like a classic inkwell setup, but with like a really kind of stiff plastic poochie in the middle and it had little stampers on the other side. I remember absolutely covering my own skin in these like poochie stamps. It's sort of like that photo of Richie Manic where he's covered in the <laughs> stamps of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Whereas, like, I poochied the ever-loving fuck out of every inch of my skin with this temper. And I had all the stationery. And I think I remember having poochie scissors or something weird, which, you know, I feel like there's a real John Waters meets the 80s vibe of, like, imagining committing murder with a pair of poochie scissors. (laughs) I probably cut my own hair with them because I was... Basically, I used, like, most of my childhood stationery it's i'm realizing now in the sort of pursuit of the kind of body modification that i would come to enjoy as an adult but the great day was when i finally got the plush yeah it was absolutely the best day of my life until that point when i finally got like the proper plush poochie but she very quickly she sort of had her fluffy ears but she very very quickly sort of became like a sad drunken old lady's like very ancient and beloved fur coat around the ears in a way that I don't mean to be shallow, but I think I quite quickly loved her less for that, I'm afraid. Well, it's quite odd that that was also the kind of coat that Sandra Rhodes would favour when she got awoken or something. So it's a very big theme of her around Poochie, isn't there? (laughs) I mean, she was all hair. She's sort of all surface, no feeling. She's very much just like a vibe and an aesthetic, given that, like... I find I can't really recall anything else about what she was meant to be other than like pink, pink, pink and in some way implying some sort of starlety cool that I probably coveted. So, you know, actually, I think looking back, there's not a lot to recommend poor Poochie. And I seem I can't remember if to one of my oldest friends and I, 
for years always called like being sort of huffy or throwing a bit of a titty lip like doing a poochie so I don't know if that was one of those strange qualities that like you end up attributing to like a toy or a character or if she was like a bit of a huffy bitch well I don't think anyone could ever accuse any of the characters from your next choice of throwing any kind of diva's drop I'll admit these completely passed me by and I'm surprised they did because of the provenance of them anyway here's a clip of them in well, I suppose you could call action, and we'll find out what they are in a minute. and grass, there is always a windfall land. And in every windfall land, you'll find windfalls. Okay, that was The Windfalls from Windfalls with no the, a children's ITV show from the late 80s. As I say, no recollection of this at all. Rose, what was going on? So The Windfalls, I oh, see the, you always went to the, it's like when 90s or new rave bands suddenly dropped the, the from their name, they're just windfalls like young knives they sort of lived in a very melancholy little pressed flower world that felt like very sort of country diary of an edwardian lady adjacent very sedate and gentle and like quite a beautiful if slightly rudimentary stop motion animation about these characters made of pressed flowers and dresses who i think they're essentially primitive psychogeographers they seem to spend a lot of time just walking about and talking about what sort of mood they're in and they're sort of divided into the sort of male or non-binary non-female not obviously female characters were all sort of little bumpkins and they were all like grasses and herbs and they were all like sort of cute little chubby messy haired individuals who incongruously cut about with these female characters that were all like made out of pretty flowers and they were all sort of very neurasthenic and fashion looking like all sort of breakably thin and did a lot of sighing and they all seem to experience quite a lot of like existential misery and they're overseen by it's not clear what the role of Uncle Onion is but he does seem to gaslight them quite a lot you know sort of go go for a walk and they come back and they he'll go where were you I thought you'd be back earlier and there's even an episode where he sort of tells someone that she should be cornflower who looks like a sort of joyless ballerina made of cornflowers tells her that she should be grateful that the sort of Fenella fielding of windfalls who's belladonna this like clump of deadly nightshade who makes her dance and then gives her like a load of poison berries uncle onion tells cornflower she should be grateful for that as a present she was trying to be nice it's quite an odd quite minor-key, melancholy little world of strange sort of folk artists doing Richard Long-type walking art projects and trying to pursue rainbows they can never find and essaying the essential eco-poetic futility of their environment and then yeah, and look at a sort of group of quite nervy, miserable, model-esque flower women and obviously a lot of that's with adult 
retrospect but I do remember finding it a massive fucking downer at the time but in that quite appealing way that a lot of that children's television is where you're like this makes me feel sad in a way that I quite enjoy and it was essentially establishing my personality. Well what I found really really strange about it was I think as far as I can tell sources differ some say it was 1988 some say it was 1989 but either way it's not just like something from 15 years previously it seems really like a fish out of water in that context but also I don't think it is really like the sort of short animations that you would have got before the news even then yeah because it was made by film fur who also made things like the herbs Paddington, Simon the Land of Chalk Drawings, you know, those sort of things, which had a bit more, even when they were quite melancholy at times, like the movement was, had a bit more sort of verve and get up and go. So this is like something you would have seen as an insert in the BBC Schools programme. It's more like that's got that kind of weird sort of, this is almost proper television for me, but not quite vibe to it. And I find it really odd that this was on in the same schedules as Press Gang. That just doesn't seem to add up to me at all. No, and I feel like I watched it when I was much younger, but I can't find any evidence that existed before. And it's clearly, yeah, it does feel like it's got that sort of tedious, patrician, here is the not very tacit, quite obvious, supposedly tacit educational stuff about here are what these plants are and what they do. But it's so profoundly in the minor key and that there's a lot of, I suppose it made me think of, how often that's present in those kinds of television like the episode of the flumps where one of them's trying to capture the moon in a bucket and in this one they're trying to find what a rainbow's made of and the rainbow disappears and so they you know go on a sort of situationist derive to pursue the rainbow in this like feels very sort of like these melancholy performances of futile questing for impossible things and there's a lot of sighing and it feels feels like it's sort of an existentialist little work of flowers and we must imagine Sisyphus happy. And also, it's got a real sort of folk horror stroke hauntology atmosphere to it, which underlines a kind of misgiving I've always had about all of that, is that people ring-fenced that to the early 70s. They will not tolerate the idea that something with the same qualities could have been made later, unless they're making it themselves, you know, which is a different story. But I don't think people would sort of accept this in the same way they might point to Bagpuss and say, oh, yes, that sort of meets our criteria. We can put that alongside the Wicker Man. Yet, I think this is really in that same sort of bracket. Accidentally, I think it's just because of the way it was made and the vision of the creator, who we'll come back onto in a second, but I really think... It's like something for that bracket, but, you know, nearly two decades too late. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 100% this sort of controlling overseer who sets them these, like, futile little wonders and then loses his temper about where they were and where they went and who they saw. Uncle Onion has massive sort of Robin Redbreast culty vibes. I would 100% believe that he would burn people or turn up with a flaming pitchfork to get rid of the townies or any of that stuff. And it, it definitely has that feeling of the sort of pastoral world and this sort of intimate connection with land that we're so convinced like only occurs in the 70s and around those sort of green building projects. But actually, this is much later and sort of carries that 
babe and also the fact that they're sort of two stories per episode and then there's a little insert with this sort of clown who's trapped in a purgatorial piece of blue paper performing acts of magic for no audience it's very much feels like it's from watch or one of those sorts of educational programs but there's a real sort of glacial pace and this little i think we've established how we feel about like clowns engaged in some <laughs> kind of otherworldly afterlife of performing a repetitive task like the original and best of the title sequence but that clown is very much in that vein of like just sort of being trapped there repeatedly conjuring birds and butterflies out of yet more drifts and confettis of pressed flowers for for no one just alone because that clown did something when they were i assume still an actual flower before they were plucked and pressed and were judged to have to clean their spirit in the bardo of this press flower magic. I assume the clown was at one point a horrible flower or a collection of flowers that did something terrible to the merit the more eternal. was a clown. <laughs> I, I can't really buy into that. One of my best friends is a clown. <laughs> well, I was quite astonished to find out who wrote and directed and designed it. The narration is by Peter Hawkins, who obviously was the voice of the Daleks and Captain Pugwash and the Flowerpot Men. But it was created by... Do you actually know who Jenny Kenner is? I don't believe I do. Well, you see, I mainly knew her as... She was originally an actress who you will regularly see in things like Are You Being Served or Whoops Baghdad. Well, she'd be, you know, they used to have one of those characters who was kind of in a skimpy outfit and would pull a face at things that were said, but didn't have any lines, crucially. So, you know, it was just a glamorous extra. And then, you know, in the end credits, she said, you have been watching. It was one of those ones where <laughs> we thought, were they actually in it? But apparently through that, she ended up, because she was quite a keen, you know, artist using natural <laughs> material materials and ended up setting a lot of the games on the generation game which people forget they were quite in those days complicated games where they had to you know <laughs> fire a kill or whatever and that then led to a career as an artist like and the children's storybook author a brilliant sideways move like that it's odd isn't it you think of these you know 70s I say glamour girls because that was the phrase. Obviously, they were women. But, you know, most of them just think that's what they did. And they probably all had other fascinating things going on in their professional lives that were lower key and we don't really know about them. Oh, doubtless. I mean, I think nearly all those women who, you you know, as you said, you only ever saw them sort of vamping and waving and winking and being sort of cute and bubbly, usually in some kind of, like, secretary outfit or a Playboy bunny costume, probably all of them them were sitting there thinking like I contain a world I contain multitudes like I can do art I can do craft probably play loads of instruments and yeah sitting there being like the sort of saucy neighbor who'd moved in next door and just got to do like oh naughty sort of reactions it's sort of amazing to realize actually there's a world of people who probably had that potential and weren't allowed and then also by the time they hit 29 were like you can't be in this anymore because you're an old bag there is one thing we just can't get away from it though which is ultimately it is an animation about leaves <laughs> 
brilliantly realised visually as it is. That just sounds odd when you say so. Oh, absolutely. And it's sort of conceptually, you know, very well realised in that it's a sort of MC Asia hands, drawing hands of like, it's by leaves, about leaves, maybe not for leaves. I, just, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there's, there's a definite sense that like it's very clear about what it's there to do and what it's there to do is sort of talk about nature and the essential pointlessness of any undertaking <laughs> apparently amongst this sort of strange combination of folk horror and fashionistas all watched over by horrible horrible uncle and you know I've really taken fast exception to since I went back and looked at it he's a deeply sinister figure well I was going to say he will probably actually have voted leave as well completing the analogy (laughs) (laughs) yeah he had a big countryside alliance vibe I think you know given that he's an onion I think he'd probably be quite happy about fucking fox hunting and things like that yeah, and it's really surprised me to go back to it. In fact, you know, I think I always expect to discover that I've sort of overwritten these things or imbued them with like a sort of adult sadness or a tedium, you know, that that gets woven into the te- like all the things like the Peter Hawkins voiceover that is sort of this comfort and this sort of voice that comes from elsewhere of authority and you assume that the sort of other stuff about sadness or meaninglessness and the sort of incredible tedium of these things is something that you bring your very adult self to and within 30 seconds it was like no it absolutely is something that I understood as a child I think as well I mean look at them they're fucking wandering about trying to find a rainbow in this incredibly tender bruising poetic way I didn't reweave those qualities into it as I became a sort of sad disappointed adult they were all there you know and maybe that's why she made it that way was all that time sort of like waving and mugging over the credits of things is that she sort of had imbued that sense of the absolute pointlessness of things into the making of windfalls okay we're going to move on to your next choice now we're a bunch of characters who I'm fairly sure it is not possible at all to read too much into them retrospectively watch me <laughs> Charmkins, Charmkins, they love hanging around. The nicest thing about Charmkins is their jewelry. Room on in school mornings, take them with you around town. Now you can take them with you in the Charmkins jewelry case. You've got brown eyed Susan too. She's pretty. Charmkins, Charmkins, they love hanging around. Charmkins Charms Accessories and Jewellery Case, sold separately from Hasbro. Okay, so that lot definitely did have a TV series. That's the intro there from Charmkins, a name that, no matter how many times I say it, I'm still convinced of saying it wrong. Rose, am I saying it correctly? I believe you are. They are Charmkins. (laughs) And again, I think we're probably going to quite quickly get to the point that there's not a lot to them or that actually they're sort of all promise and very little delivery on that promise. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's something that I'm just not familiar with at all. I don't even really remember them existing. I'm sure they must have been, you know, there must have been adverts all over the TVAM outbreaks in particular. That's where they would have pushed these. But I've just got no memory of them. But they seem to be the most losable action figures in the world. Yeah, they're sort of like a Polly Pocket precursor or just... Like, if you enjoyed losing the shoes or flight Barbies and Cindy's, then you're going to absolutely love <laughs> Triumphkins because they will, the wholeness of the thing, because they slotted together. They were little tiny sort of atom-sized infinitesimal little sort of dolls with some kind of vaguely flower fate. I'm not entirely sure of what their mythology was, but like, so many toys that were intended, you know, in a gendered way to be for little girls. They had some kind of floral hats component along with their sort of flounces and frills. And they attached to, like, I was going to say little pieces of jewellery, but the, the actual jewellery bits were like sort of big, quite clunky, ugly pieces of plastic that were nothing without the doll that or dolls that hooked on and slotted in, which, of course, you know, the dolls sat like a couple of centimetres off your finger or off your necklace. So, of course, it caught on everything. You're a child, you're playing, you're messing about, you're running around. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure anybody had the whole of a charmkin for more than 48 hours at any given time. And they have very twee names as well. The ones I found out are Lady Slipper, Baby Sunshine, <laughs> Sweet Bee, Willy Winky, not Wee Willy Winky. There's obviously some kind of copyright dispute. And something called the Honey Bee Train that they rode on. And, you know, I mean, I know there were things like the Kerbers, like I say, like Strawberry Shortcake, that had an element of twee to them. But, you know, they had something appealing about them. But this is the age of Boglins and Monster in My Pocket. Were they really that kind of appealing, the Charm Kids? They're literally saying, look, we're charming in the name. And Kins, yeah. we are very small. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I think the diminutive sort of tells you everything that you need to know. Although I think those names are quite camp. They're quite draggy. I think it makes them sound like they had a sort of far smuttier, more thrilling nightlife. It made me nightlife. like Kenneth Hall one now. <laughs> 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 Fancy you trolling into Chomkin Hunt. <laughs> I mean, I think the Tramkins does sound like maybe like a bit of a rebel dance troupe when you set them into that context. But actually, they were, you know, I don't think they could have been more sort of tediously chased and twee. And I mean, I like personally, I probably liked them because I could wear them and that they were big sort of blingy rings, although, as I say, not for long. Um, but they definitely were, an, you know, a real essay and disappointment in the sense of like, I'm not sure how true this is of sort of quote unquote boys, to, as in toys that were intended for boys to play with. But I feel like there was a whole world of girls toys that Charmkins are the avatar of where like they looked so tantalising in the Eyeglass catalogue and so exciting and so imbued with sparkly promise in the packaging you know when all the little pieces are together and before they're sort of tainted by possession and before you have almost immediately lost some or all of their component parts they are the absolute soul of a toy that you took out of the packet and were like all right what now then i've got this and now what and obviously the now what was 
where's it gone? I've lost it. And like, you know, that terrible noise of like Lego, like very small, like one dot bits of Lego or Cindy shoes or whatever, like just rattling up the hoover at a later day <laughs> and having to beg my mum to open those horrible old school hoover bags full of sort of like fluff and dog hair to see if I don't know what was she called lady slipper or like grandma knickers or whatever had made it into the hoover and if that was what had made that noise <laughs> was lady slipper disappearing because <laughs> she certainly wasn't attached to whatever little plastic necklace or ring she derived with like not for a long time <laughs> i don't particularly remember a story they could dangle from your neck they could dangle from your fingers we're probably doing them an absolutely terrible disservice and they had like a complex multi-layered society with like an arts ecosystem and like really great social services and mutual aid and things but it's my recollection that there was very little to them other than that it looked incredible incredibly thrilling and tantalizing in the packaging and from that moment on but you know just became small objects of disappointment and disillusionment almost immediately well one thing that i think really time locks them in the early 80s is like i say there was the tie-in cartoon and the main voice in it playing somebody called brown-eyed susan was aileen quinn who was annie in Annie. no way obviously (laughs) She's got a really interesting career trajectory because, you know, she must have had the world at her feet after that film. And she apparently, she'd done like, you know, commercials and guest roles on sitcoms as, you know, the cutesy kid before that. And by all accounts, she very determinedly said, I don't want to grow up with this being my life. I want to move into voice work and theatre, which she's done very successfully to this day. Because if you Google her, every article that comes up is what ever happened to Aileen Quinn. It's like, well, <laughs> she's basically done voices on every video game you've ever played. And she's still doing sellout Broadway roles. So. That's amazing. She obviously saw Orson Welles doing the Transformers movie and thought that's a great model for a career. I mean, there wasn't a Chimekins movie, was there? I find it hard to imagine, like, what would the Chimekins cartoon or movie be other than, like, is it like a borrower's type of vibe or is it the actual borrower's finding all the lost? Chimekins, do the borrowers have an orphanage full of Chimekins? I can tell you exactly now what would have happened in the feature-length Chimekins cartoon, which is okay, a neighbourhood bully would have said, hey, 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 look what I found. He picked up one of them and walked away. It appeared like the others trying to get them back. You don't even need to I mean... make it. You can just write it in your mind on that description alone. That was always what happened. <laughs> I think in, probably also in an attempt to make children feel like, oh God, these poor sort of homeless, loveless little toys without owners, I must ask my parents to buy me more because I too in some way are saving them from the bowels of Argos. I'm sure it is there to press those sort of saviour complexes in small children of going like all the chumpkins like suffocate in the packaging and die in the bowels of Argos if you don't get your parents to buy you them in a timely manner. Well, that's the thing. There seems to be millions of them and millions of accessories, but they didn't last very long. And the sort of thing where I can imagine a couple of years later, you'd be watching Bullseye and they go like, in for 
you will have fun with these branded toys. We can't mention the brand name of. You know, we made a photo of some Charmkins looking in a very sorry state. And it's odd for something that was apparently that big that they disappeared that quickly. Well, I mean, I think it was probably because they literally disappeared. Like, I don't remember <laughs> wanting a second or a third Charmkin. Or, like, I think I got, a cu- you know, asked for a couple from different relatives. As they quite literally disappeared, you thought, that was shit. I don't want any more of those like not to sound like veruca's soul but like i don't think it makes you crave to collect the rest of the set if you can't keep hold of the minimal amount that you received in the first place and of course that means as someone who collects things as an adult not chimkins because i obviously have quite complicatedly bitter feelings towards them but you know they go for a fortune because it's so rare for them to actually be intact they're sort of like a fragment of the true cross for people who collect 80s toys. Well, speaking of things going for a fortune, your next choice, I was astonished to find out not only the actual original examples of these go for ridiculous money, people making their own knockoff versions are charging stupid amounts as well. I've got no idea how to introduce this, so here's a bit of music that contains one word in common with them. because I wasn't using that dreadful, dreary 70s AOR song, Beautiful Sunday. That's a bit of Vanessa Paradis singing Sunday Mondays, which, you know, basically it looks a familiar choice in itself. The follow-up to Be My Baby that nobody remembers. But anyway, I'm rabbiting on and on because I can't think of a decent way of introducing Beautiful Sunday stationery. So, Rose, I'll let you do the honours. Yeah, again, I think part of the emerging theme is of, like, incredibly tantalising things to small Rose and probably lots of other small children that uh, you know fundamentally not as exciting when they become yours but it was quite gorgeous stationery it was I think imported from Japan and um, that had all these like sort of pensive again it's like you know spoilt little girls sort of in the vein of Victoria Plum or Holly Hobby sort of all in straw boaters and little sort of Victorian addresses with like flouncy little aprons Sort of doing very gendered old fashioned things like a bit of housework or sort of walking about with their hands very nicely folded. And I think they always had like sort of little pussy bows and all 
had hair like Legolas from Lord of the Rings in that kind of like half-tied back way that was all the very there for a lot of the mid-20th century, but now just makes you look like you're aspiring to be an elven lord. And it was sort of those fancy quilted pencil cases in that phase of the 80s where something being like padded or quilted or puffy in some way denoted it as like some kind of luxury item, like you wanted it in a Valentine card. That was true, truest of true love. If someone bought you one of the sort of padded ones with like the embossed bears or like a bit of lace on it this had a very similar vibe of being impossibly romantic and you know those little perspex cases of colorful erasers that were all wrapped in like the branded paper which of course then like you didn't want to use them because then it's not a set anymore and you didn't want to use them because they were sort of like had those paper wrappers like crayola crayon do and you didn't want to tear those because then it's not pretty you know it's that thing about stationery that for a long time has and still does when it comes in these like immaculate rainbow sets it's an aesthetic object it's not a utilitarian object and so actually it's essentially just a pointless but quite pretty sculptural form (laughs) rather than being anything that can get involved in homework or drawing or any of those things so I think that like I'm sort of fascinated by that kind of stationery as quite an anxious object I remember being like that about it as a child and I think a lot of my friends were where you would you know sort of collect the stickers or the pencil case or the pencils or the pens and then you realize it's about like the prettiness of these branded things all being together and the cute little girls on it that sort of paralyzes them into obsolescence almost immediately because you're like this is so cute and I just want to look at the pictures on them and I am never going to use these for anything at all because then they won't be perfect anymore. Well I think some people did use them because as I've talked about on here a couple of times as a teenager I was an inveterate user of, do you remember you used to get those pen pal services? Mm, I certainly do. Yeah you fill out a form, send it in and you get matched with people who you just come down one morning, your parents say oh there's a load of letters for you <laughs> from all over the world and you know bless them there'll be 14 year old boys in Italy saying just can you send me tape of English charts please <laughs> all, all this into one but with girls I always felt like I could visualise what kind of implements they're using to write with because obviously the ones who were interesting who were basically humorous undiagnosed psychopaths I always felt were the ones that used the you know those pens with like 10 or 12 different colour biro fills in them where you could change the colour of them and they wrote oh, letters yeah. about saying like you know having the sentence to say in capitals why can I hear Gladys Pugh I hate Gladys Pugh and then change colour and say <laughs> I will murder her in a minute you know that's but if you got a letter from a girl that was you know on sort of floral lined holly hobby-ish notepaper and it said things like I don't know a lot of people don't seem to like doing geography homework but I quite like it I always thought they were writing with beautiful Sunday and maybe they were I know think actually that you know I had pen pals I really liked then I had one that I met on a camping holiday who was a Swedish girl who used to write me really long letters that were entirely about Brian May and her (laughs) what (laughs) I remember she had this absolutely incredible phrase where she was like there never has been or ever will be again hair as wonderful as that that sits on top of the head of the man Well, I don't think Anita Dobson probably hadn't quite made the transition to Swedish fame, or maybe it was just that, you know, 
Ursula was so entirely monomaniacally obsessed with Brian May that she'd sort of notionally deleted Anita Dobson from his <laughs> life because she couldn't bear to think of him with anyone but her, you know. But definitely there was a thing with pen pals of like, I think my love language with pen pals or like how I probably created a hierarchy of like who wrote the best letters and so deserved the best letters was like sitting there with stationery or note cards or like beautiful Sunday type stuff or, the, or if you think Holly Hobby or Victoria Plum they're all slightly mashed into that like little Victorian girls who were all probably horrible horrible little shits like the kind of children who all the teachers think are incredibly wonderful and helpful and so sweet and actually they're sort of pinching and kicking other people under the desk and I always thought like looked at those little girls and thought like bet you're a grass bet you're a massive awful you know set other people up and dob them in little horror but they looked great on stationery also I suspect that a lot of them were actually you know ghosts they had real sort of comeback Lucy sort of haunted terrible spoiled child Victoriana Veruca still like trapped in uh, groovy families mansion vibes but I, def- I definitely definitely created a hierarchy that only old poison pen here knew about in like who got the nicest note cards and who could have the sort of lesser holly hobby or those sort of like doe-eyed almost big-eyed children type 1920s flappers that I think used to see them printed on mirrors or I think they came on sort of stationery probably from boots at Christmas in their kind of like who do you have to buy a present for that's either a young girl or an elderly woman who you don't really know what they like but this is incredibly feminine so they can have that but I definitely had a huge hierarchy within what stationery was used for which pen pals and the pinnacle was I was basically declaring my utmost love if I gave you the beautiful Sunday treatment that was a way of saying you know they've got a little bit of a pen pal crush on you what's really weird though is it's not like there's nothing on the internet about beautiful Sunday because you know there were all kinds of collector sites and appreciation posts and so on but there is nothing about I tried to find out the background to the whole brand it was manufactured by Kutsua who I can find out Mm. nothing about not even. I was half expecting it to be like a kind of there's your answer fishbowl kind of got to a heavy manufacturing industry. There just wasn't anything. I like to think that like the Kutsua family or individual just felt like I've peaked. This is my legacy. This is what I wanted to do in the world was create this specific stationery that some of which is quite an uneasy mix between these sort of like frilly pensive little girls and then like sort of something that looks like the set of Wackaday or like there's (laughs) lots of sort of 80s Miami style like just like fun shapes just really jazzy fun shapes in that colour palette that's like not quite primary colours not quite pastel colours but it just says like we're here to have a good time and there's probably pink and blue drinks and cocktails and so you know that kind of 80s shape confetti was quite often the background to these otherwise quite haunted and haunting little girls from another era but I like to think that Kutsawa or the Kutsawas, whoever they were, were like, that's what we came here to do. We achieved, we've peaked, we don't need to produce anything else. It was just that. I thought the world needed it. Now it's there and we're gone. We're done. 
we can improve on it. Okay, well, it's interesting you should use the word haunting because that does lead me really neatly into your next choice. I can't believe I couldn't find, obviously, anything to use as a clip for this. So I am just amazed at the lengths I've gone to here. You might recognise this sound, you might not do, but I will explain what it is and why it's keeping you up at night in a minute. Okay, that was the very slow down and echoey mechanism of the Trumpton Town Clock. <laughs> You'll find out why in a minute, but Rose, this is two books you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about two collections of short stories by Alison Prince, Haunted Children and The Ghost Within, both of which are sort of M.I. Jamesian, profoundly chilling, genuinely quite horrible in quite a grown-up way, sort of ghost and haunting novels that are almost, they're almost reminiscent of those like very early Ian McEwan short story collections for adults about where sort of the horrifying and uncanny of the real world intersect with sort of claustrophobic supernatural things and these were intended for small children and I uh, you know or not that small they were sort of intended for children I guess towards the end of primary early secondary but you know they're sort of saturated in the genuinely macabre and things that feel very sort of requiem for a village and recognisably folk horror and things about lilies growing out of dead bodies and there's like an absolutely brutal short story about some very poor poor, impoverished child being invited to like a snobby girl's birthday party. You know, she was probably a beautiful Sunday girl. I bet she had like a little apron and a straw boater and, you know, starving herself to save up all her dinner money to buy this girl chocolates and then in a sort of ravenous delirium, eating them all. It's slightly like those stories you used to get in like Bunty and Girl that were like strangely obsessed in some kind of lurid pornographic way with the horrors of poverty and hunger and things like that. They stayed with me all my life and they came to me through Alice and Prince coming to my primary school when I was a child. And obviously like anyone who comes to visit your school means that you're not sitting in class and that you go into the assembly hall and it's a talk and it's like at least an hour of not doing schoolwork. You sort of assume that all that, you know, I remember feeling like the policeman that came to give us a talk about the Green Cross Code man, like felt like a celebrity. We were his audience, you know, he was giving forth. So the idea that like a writer could come to your school and talk to you about, but I mean, I would have just expired, swooned, fainted, like exploded in a spatter of heart-shaped confetti if I had realised what she'd also written that I'm sure we're going to get onto in a moment but I was just amazed that like a real writer and this is a job that you can do and this is this person telling us these, I think she read some of her incredibly frightening stories and I was quite an anxious little soul so I doubtless had nightmares for weeks but just you know this combination of intimidation and excitement and being impressed and also incredibly scared and scared in that way where you're like give me more I want to read everything that this amazing person has written about terrible things happening to children and then meeting ghosts 
Well, for me, it's completely the other way round. In that I was later astonished to find out Alice and Prince have written lots of horror novels, mainly for children, and also one I remember reading when I was younger that I hadn't put two and two together about, which is, I think it's from 1986, it's called The Others, where it's set in a dystopian future where people are kind of like neurologically programmed to do specific jobs. And, you know, oh, what happens God. if that programming breaks? And so she had that whole thing. But I mainly knew Alison Prince as a writer for children's television. And the story there is that because I interviewed her a couple of times and basically she studied art at university and then found in the late 50s, you know, there was no way for women to get jobs in art. And so she mm. became a teacher, then had a couple of children. And one day, while she was taking time out from teaching to raise her kids, she's walking in the park, she met another artist called Joan Hickson. Not Joan Hickson, it was Miss Marple. This is somebody mm. different. But they were talking about children's television and the fact that watching their kids running round, you know, there was nothing featuring anything like their kids. And they both said, well, let's just write and make one and see what happens. And so they did a pilot for something called Joe, which is really forgotten now, which is about a boy whose parents ran a transport cafe, you know, mid-60s on the BBC. That's quite modern, really. And that was quite successful at the time. But what then happened was Gordon Murray had just made Camberwick Green. And he was about to start making Trumpton. And I can't believe I'm going to get narratively dense and analytical about <laughs> Trumptonshire. But basically, if you look at Camberwick Green, those stories, for want of a better word, are all vignettes. They're all something that happens in the character's working day. There's not really a start and end to what happens, apart from them going in that music box, obviously, and that bloody clown. But because Trumpton was set in, you know, a sort of bustling, town and he wanted to make a bit different and he'd seen Joe and quite liked it that he said to Alison can you write 13 scripts for this can you come up with 13 stories based around the fire brigade who can't attend to actual fires yeah she then progressed from there into writing horror stories for children and I wonder if that's because I have a thing about you know we were talking about the hauntology and you know when you look back at some children's TV you think who thought this was suitable I think a lot of people I mean people like Alison Prince must have been towards the end of this generation but a lot of them came up from a pre-television era a different mode of storytelling when being a bit more brutal and creepy was acceptable because you're working in different mediums. You're working mainly in books and to a lesser extent radio where, you know, you've not got that visual element. And I think that's what informs a lot of what we think are very weird decisions in old children's TV now. It's just that these people are from different disciplines and had a different way of telling stories. And obviously that was then adapted very well into books that clearly frightened you out of your wits. <laughs> Oh, definitely. And, and I'm sure I'm willing to believe that it's all Gordon Murray. But like when I think about the way that that music box acted on the core of my being as a child and the sort of deep sadness watching them disappear down into the dark and sort of being like, where do they go? What happens to them? Are they being punished? Do they meet the clown from windfalls? Do they just have to perform some kind of like labour of Sisyphus? Like I absolutely could believe that having read those books, it was entirely the sort of infernal idea of Alison Prince that you would make them descend in this 
sort of portal to the Bardo like that because you know those books are they're beautifully written but there's you know there's no I think there's no sense that they're being written in a way that is mindful of curtailing or curbing their power to deserve in a way that you know I think as an adult I'm so incredibly grateful for those things that you don't quite understand or you're not quite ready for and that you know that actually do act on you in some deep way that create like a real free song that like haunt you in quite a literal emotional way you know I feel like for me part of starting to make things is always trackable back to books like that where I'm like yeah I think it makes me sound like a bit of a creep or like a weird sort of dominating (laughs) controlling psychopath but that you know that idea that you could make things that really made people feel and that you could make things that really remained with people. I think those books like that or those pieces of television that did have some genuine horror and that they didn't talk down to you and they weren't really worried about the fact that they might keep you awake at night. I'm sort of incredibly grateful for the ways that they did sort of slightly brutalise me as a child. (laughs) <laughs> and I would describe the effect of some of her stories as genuinely harrowing, <laughs> genuinely brutalising and genuinely that they sort of remained with you in a real sort of whistle and I'll come into you sort of a way. And that I think, you know, as an adult, I think it's amazing to look back on something like that and going like, imagine conceiving these stories and not thinking that they're in any way a bit much. Also, I think there's something very generous about the idea of someone not assuming that children can't handle that or that they're not ready for it. And, you know, it sounds like she had children and she'd been making work for children. Like the idea of understanding that children are fundamentally quite ghoulish little beings, which I certainly was. And I spent as much time as I spent sort of loving on my toys and being sweet to them. I, you know, also spent a lot of time cutting all their hair off or I had a Victoria Plum doll that was incredibly satisfying. You could sort of push your thumbs into her eye sockets and collapse (laughs) her entire face with like a, a, you know, a really rewarding sort of pop. And, you know, she sort of looked amazing because I had a real spider. I didn't want her. My grandma thought she was like, you know, a nice little girl in a nice dress. So I spent my entire tenure as her caregiver completely tormenting her like some kind of soul meets a brambly hedge sort of thing but children are ghoulish and they're fascinated by the darkness and the horrible and so I think for an adult to write in a way that completely acknowledges that and doesn't particularly try to neutralize things like you know very grateful to those horrible horrible incredibly frightening and absolutely brilliant books and yet they've don't appear to have ever been reprinted. And there doesn't even seem to be that much of a cult following for them. So let's hope we can kickstart something on the back of this. But we're moving on to your last choice now, which, you know, in keeping with what they've just been saying, is one of the most ghoulish things for children ever. Honest.
Okay, not much you can use as a clip there. So that's a bit of Tinkerbell's fairy dust in 1967 singing Lazy Day. There was obviously no suspicious smoke in the studio on the day they recorded that. So, Rose, why have I used this record here? It is pink and it is fashion and it is Tinkerbell makeup which was a makeup brand solely aimed as, you know, sort of the training bra of the face, that it was essentially makeup to get little girls into, or like any little children, but of course it was the 70s and 80s, so it was entirely aimed at like gender-conforming female children. But yeah, it was there to get them into wearing makeup. It was there, it was the gateway drug. It was all pink, pink packaging with like sort of cutesy I don't know a little girl that could almost be like Poochie's human owner it had a similar vibe of like that 80s almost refers back to the 60s kind of the packaging it made a great thing of it what was it called Bobo makeup as in like you brushed it on and you peeled it off which as an adult if you ever wear nail polish or have your nails done you realize that like basically it's shit nail polish it's just really really bad but I assume that that was sort of an appeal to the parents to bypass whatever objections they might have had about like this makeup being advertised to their small children was going like it's not really makeup it just just peels off you don't need acetone remover so that was one of its big virtues and also that there was like a a sort of little roll-on stick of perfume you know all the chicest luxury of Paris to me as a child but actually it's sort of very much was obviously like the sort of runoff from the Yardley bottling plant it was just Lily of the Valley it was very much like shades of like elderly relative again very much of the kind of Bronley Yardley like okay we see this like senescent great aunt once a year what are we going to get at that you know lily of the valley eau de toilette and it was that like put into incredibly cute covetable pretty pink packaging and it was the sort of brand that you wouldn't really get in you know the big stores you would see this maybe in Woolworths or you know when you used to get those discount stores where they had all kinds of <laughs> branded things and huge bottles of perfume that almost looked like they were throbbing menacingly because <laughs> the perfume in the better covers was so virulently corrosive <laughs> It was that kind of... that They were very successful in cornering that market, the sort of stocking filler makeup market, I suppose. I would imagine it was a safe brand to give to young girls. Well, I mean, I think I'm not sure... I don't know. I think it depends on the parents, doesn't it? Is there ever a safe brand to give young girls when it comes to makeup? Because some parents think that's fine and some parents... like. My, I mean, I like part of the reason I chose it was I was obsessed with it and I wasn't allowed it because I had, you know, quite stereotypically middle-class parents with, like, a very specific kind of snobbery aka like little girls wearing makeup is common or tarty and I was like well too bad because it's literally all I want and I will use felt tips if I can't have this stuff but I think it was really well marketed in that kind of it feels like there was a glut of those kind of self-embellishment slash slightly self-hatred toys around that time there was crayon girl makeup and there was also get in shape girl that was a bit like you're fat you're fat you're already fat like start losing weight and start wearing makeup because your face is probably awful 
you know so I think even though my mum didn't let me have it I was both obsessed with it and also probably ingesting the message of going like it's time it's time I should be wearing makeup other people have got this pink nail varnish and you know there was no sort of range of colours it came in like pink 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 like poochie's ears pink like strawberry shortcakes like it was there was one pink that was just sort of like 80s girl toy not quite hot pink not quite pale pink it's just like the absolute soul of pink toys aimed at girls in the 80s but it did you know it did seem very well marketed I know that like without ever being able to have it I was completely seduced by the notion of it both like the sort of cute packaging that it was in and the idea that like you know your face could be a bit pinker and so could your hands and that you could smell of like incredible beautiful exotic scents you could smell of pink you could have like pink lips pink nails this was all like you know I didn't really live in a you know my mum's definitely like more of a sort of utilitarian individual I remember finding her sort of sad dried up makeup that was probably like brown mascara and brown eyeshadow whereas like you know I was naturally a very camp and flamboyant child whereas like you know even if I neck this off you it's not gonna cut any ice so I think it was definitely one of those toys that was like high value to the child who coveted it low value to the purchaser and probably high value as an ideological battleground to people like my mum who were very anti a child wearing makeup and I think it's probably around the time of things like the mini pops and you know I imagine my mum would have looked at that and had plenty of swinging things to say about that which is entirely sort of probably fine and reasonable with regard to that but I am you know I imagine that she looked at that and thought oh, oh god this is what you want to turn yourself into and and she was doubtless right. Well do you know what happened to Tinkerbell Cosmetics ultimately? I do not. Well, the interesting story is they were launched apparently in 1952 by a company called Tomfield Associates who bought the rights name Tinkerbell from apparently the rights to J.M. Barry's literary creations are owned by Great Ormond Street Hospital. And they did that in 1952. Disney got the rights to do Peter Pan in 1953. So they had this pre-existing agreement that was fine. In 1999, so after the brand had been around and really successful for nearly 50 years, they were acquired by another company who promptly decided to try and sue Disney for ownership of the name Tinkerbell. It's a bold move, isn't it? You can imagine what the outcome of that was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like a company who will sue ice cream vans for having a terrible Mickey Mouse painted on the side. (laughs) I can't imagine it ended well for them. Well, and also, why would you do it anyway? You've got this side brand that Disney can't do anything about. And, you know, what they did with Tinkerbell was different enough, you know, looked different to the Tinkerbell on the packaging for this, was mainly about Tinkerbell mainly just introduced the wonderful world of Disney from what I can remember. Yeah, I think until she sort of became a brand in her own right in a more modern way, I think she, you know, she just sort of flitted about the credits of things. Whereas I think I seem to remember the Tinkerbell on the makeup package was more of like, you know, she was more of a crystal tipsy girl with 
big blonde hair. And I'm sure she, yeah, there were like images of her sitting gossiping on the phone to her friends because that's what you do when you're a fun makeup girl with lovely pink lips that smells of like pissy old lady perfume. So I think, you know, I don't remember particularly thinking that it had any relationship to Disney or that Tinkerbell who, like, let's face it, is quite a shallow child. There was like, her dress is green, I couldn't give a flying fuck at a rolling donut, I just want pink things and I'm still like that as an adult. So, you know, more for them for getting involved in some internecine expensive warfare with Disney and their inferior Tinkerbell. Who's more, to my mind, just because she's in a green dress, she's like belongs in windfalls, not in the wonderful world of Poochie and Junior Cosmetics. Well, there will be very little pink cosmetics involved in something that we both try really hard to identify that you mentioned, that I'm still drawing a blank on. I'm hoping, as usual, somebody out there will have some idea what this is, but I've tried looking everywhere I could think of. I've got a theory about what it might actually be, but can you describe it first? So, I remember either at the very end of primary school or the beginning of secondary school. I think possibly on a sick day, I think it could have been part of like a school's programme, but I could have... But I remember it being one of those days that felt very sort of illicit anyway. And I didn't play truant until I was much older, so I assume I probably had tonsillitis or one of those things that you get as a kid or was pretending to be ill and saw this to my mind incredible drama because I was probably like a little goth in training by then or certainly had begun to have goth aspirations this drama about you know a very high fields of the nephilim cure blitz kid like high goth heyday girl, teenage girl, who through a set of events I don't particularly remember, spends the afternoon with like a very towny boy in a sort of seaside resort and I think they play arcade games and it's a classic sort of mismatched oil and water. These two people are not alike. What the hell could they have to say to each other? I think maybe they were both playing truant from the same school, but obviously it was Taylor's oldest time and not in any way like narratively fresh or exciting, but it was like a classic mismatched romance where they fell for one another in the space of this single afternoon in this incredibly heart pulverizing way where you're like and then they'll go back to their separate worlds and they won't be together anymore because she'll be ashamed of him and he'll be ashamed of her you know but I think at a point in your life where especially when you are in the process of becoming a goth not usually because you're having an amazing time and feeling accepted by your peers to me this sort of mirage appeared in the middle of my afternoon and was like you too can be like cute and sexy and lovable even if it is to a boy who you objectively in the real world would have no interest in as a shallow little horror because he's far too towny for you but yeah it does just like shimmer in my mind like this perfect mirage of something that told you what you needed at the time when you needed it and then ever since then I haven't been able to find it no one from TV Cream's been able to find it and I genuinely sometimes think that it was a lonely fever dream that I conjured into being because I needed to see another little goth be adored so fucking much. 
like my heart really goes out to you for that because it sounds like everyone has that thing when they're growing up where they think that's the most romantic thing ever and it later turns out no not necessarily to be and you know the added thrill of seeing it when you weren't at school I mean, it's not quite on the same level as as I mentioned when I was the guest on here when I saw Bad Ronald that sleazy American horror <laughs> film <laughs> you know two in the afternoon on ITV aged about six but it does seem sad that it had such an effect on you and you cannot track it down so please anyone listening who's got any idea please let us know well if there's one important message we all need to learn as children it's that it's okay to be a goth <laughs> It found me at the moment only to do it and I've never looked back and I've combined my love of the Tinkerbell Pink and the Goth to, I don't think, great effects. <laughs> I definitely think it's the message that we all need. I'll say nothing about the effect of seeing Herman's Hermit's Mrs Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, had on my fashion choices <laughs> later in life. <laughs> and I think we'll just leave that there. Rose, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Fun at One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Penny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details at timworthington.org.